You can't see me, but I'm dangling from a helicopter as it flies to the secret lair of an evil villain. But all I can think about is the cars below saving money on tolls and earning toll perks rewards with a toll tag. When I'm done at the lair, I'm visiting GetMyTollTag.com. Wish me luck! The Leslie Marshall Show, a true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. Cliff Schechter. I am filling in for Leslie Marshall, the one and only on the Leslie Marshall Show. We've got a number of great guests coming up this afternoon. We're going to be talking some politics, uh, talking a lot of politics. We do that kind of thing here. Um, Some policy, even. um, And uh, strange happenings around Donald Trump and immigration. Um, But to kick it all off, we're going to start with, uh, as I sit here in Cincinnati, Ohio, we're going to start with the, the Ohio Democratic Party chairman, David Pepper. David, are you with us? I am. How you doing? All right, buddy. How are you doing? I'm I'm pretty good. I'm in Cincinnati today myself. I actually started oh. out up north and now I'm down here. Nice weather down here today, huh? Yeah, it's beautiful. <laughs> um, not uh, certainly you're getting the word out, but maybe not everybody knows yet that besides being the chairman of the Ohio Democratic Party, you are an author. You've just written a novel called The People's House. Yeah, no, I, I did. I've actually been, been um, plugging away at it for some time after traveling the state a lot and being, uh, being a, a consumer of political thrillers. I also decided to write one myself. So the People's House is all about uh, fracking, gerrymandering, uh, even, I don't want to give away the plot, but even includes some uh, foreign interference with our elections. So, yeah, we just released it a couple weeks ago, and I've gotten actually a really good response, so we've been excited about it. You have. I, I, I was reading a little bit myself and seeing uh, I'm going to read all the way through. I'm excited about it. You have a Russian energy baron, which seems strange that anybody from Russia would try to mess with an election here. That, that doesn't seem like anything we've seen at all. Right, exactly. I actually, I, I worry that people are going to not realize I wrote, I wrote this before the current cycle. Now, I took a little time to edit it, but, but yeah, it, it's... Um, but, the, you know, the heart of the book, uh, I, I'm someone who, you, you, anyone who reads the book will pick up on my politics. I'm someone who, maybe more than anything in the world, is, is passionate about ending gerrymandering. And so the, the heart of the book is all about how, how the, the consequence of gerrymandering just run, run a you know, roughshod over so many parts of our democracy. And that ends up being the heart of the plot. But it, it, one of the things it points out is, is that, you know, the control of the entire Congress comes down to 25 to 30 random districts all over the all over the country. Not really a lot of rhyme or reason to it. It's just there happened to be a few districts in a lot of state in a number of states that couldn't be gerrymandered. And, and so the, the point, you know, the plot here is that you've got you've got um, someone beyond America figures out, well, heck, if, if that's the way they they've drawn their country, the easiest way to change the outcome of an election in um, in America is to go after those swing districts. So it's it's a little bit of a complicated plot, but but actually, as you watch what's actually, happening today, it's um it's it's closer to reality than people would want to, would want to think. 
Well, and if you realize that how much of the edifice of our elections, I know you know this every day, but we all, you know, we, we, that we go through when we ask, why are things done that way? Some people might ask that with the Electoral College, or they might ask that as you're talking about how congressional districts are determined. And so much of this was, was decided, as we know, constitutionally a long time ago. American society has changed. Gerrymandering, as you're pointing out, you got guys who now can sit down and statistically analyze and make sure they get every last point so they get the, they can win the most seats. And you know, after 2010, we're certainly one of those states. But Pennsylvania and Arizona and Michigan and Wisconsin and Florida, you can keep going on and on. Where a lot of money came in from people like the Koch brothers after Citizens United, and they realized that if they won control of state house districts and state senate seats, that they could take over the congressional delegation too. So it's it's not really all that far fetched, is it? No, I mean, it, and it's it's just Ohio has has seen this as much as any state in the country. You know, we are a 50-50 state, as everyone sees every four years. But in our state, basically, no matter what the voters do, we have a 12-4 Republican majority locked into Congress. When only seven years ago, we actually had more Democratic Congress people than Republicans. All that is a result of gerrymandering. And it's just, you know, it's really killing our system. Right now, we have this, you know, who knows what's going to happen, and we can talk about that. Uh, but we have this major national debate over Trump-Clinton. The Senate's up for grabs, but but more or less almost no one thinks the House will change, not because the voters are having a say. It's because these districts are what they are. And, and again, part of the book's point is, you know, I, I use some non-American commentators. You know, I always, I, I've always thought about this. You know, we're a country that lectures the world on, on democracy and, and democratic systems, and we do technical assistance all over the world. But here we essentially have 90% of the elections of our country for legislator, for legislative seats, and Congress being the best example. You want to use the word rigged, they're rigged by the districts. And yeah. it's a terrible system, and it has a lot of consequences. It makes the legislating process, you watch, it's, all, it's, it's so polarized, nothing happens. But it has other consequences too. I mean, voting turnout goes down because no one, people don't think their vote matters. They hardly even know who the candidates are. Uh, the yeah. candidates themselves, the incumbents, aren't accountable. They don't even show up anymore. And I'd say the one other terrible thing is, and we see this in Ohio, you know, we want good, we want fresh voices in politics. We want new people getting in, getting in, and you want to build that bench. But if the, if your losses are guaranteed by the district shape, you're not, you're not going to get young people getting these races like they would have five or ten years ago. You're not going to, and all of a sudden, you're, you know, the whole next generation of politicians, unless they have a gerrymandered district they happen to live in that they're going to win, they're not going to even run. And we're seeing that in places like Ohio. It's a real problem. No, it is. I mean, it's ridiculous. We, you know, we know in a lot of these seats, as you're saying, I think in 2012, 2008, Democrats in both cases. Uh, if I'm remembering correctly, won by, you know, rather large margins by, you know, with overall voters and even overall voters voting for the House and some other elections. And yet they still exactly. don't win back the seats, because, as you're pointing out, if, you, if they can draw seats that are sort of election proof, which is kind of the antithesis of democracy. So, no, I find that fascinating uh, about your book. I think that's great. You've got a, a story about, you know, a main character who's a reporter, Youngstown Vindicator. Youngstown's getting a lot of attention as an area that's been pretty hard hit. Uh, Donald Trump has gone there, certainly. We just, I think, very recently, the other day, Hillary Clinton may have been there. Um, yeah. So I, there's a lot of things about this book, I think, that can appeal to people. 
well beyond Ohio that, that make it kind of fascinating. Um, yeah, no, it, uh, thanks for saying that. It's uh, we Actually, Biden is in Youngstown today, but the, yeah, it's a Youngstown Vindicator reporter, and he, he's sort of an old jaded guy covering that the old congressional district that runs down the river that, like you're saying, is right in the heart of where a lot of this campaign is going to happen. And that's where, and this reporter uh, stumbles upon some irregularities in that district that make him, you know, start to suspect that something bigger happened. And, again, I don't want to give too much away, but the bigger actually sounds a lot like some of the stories in the paper in the last couple of weeks about people trying to hack into the system. And, and you know, the other thing, and I don't want to, I don't want to overstate it. I mean, one, one thing I want to make clear, Donald Trump's discussion of rigging elections is ridiculous. I mean, he, he's trying to leave an impression that, that, you know, tens of thousands of people are going to vote more than once and that that means if he, if he loses, that's the reason for it. Right. Uh, the, the book makes the point that's not the kind of voter fraud that, that is realistic or that anyone should worry about. And it's been used, that, that, that myth has been used to really suppress voters. Uh, but, but the book does point out that the movement towards electronic machines without, in many states, paper trails and paper ballots that are not subject to hacking, I mean, there is some risk. And, yeah, that's and worrisome to me. That. And that's, that's another piece of the book that I think is close to reality that people probably want to, want to know. But, but now, some states are, are reacting to this challenge. I mean, I think things were more problematic about six or eight years ago, where after Bush v. Gore and Florida, states rushed to these electronic voting machines where you just touched the screen and there was never a paper trail. And that right. was the highest risk moment when a lot of states did that. States are now starting to catch up and having these optical scan and paper trail systems that are better. But, but again, you know, these are part of the book. Part of the point of the book is, you know, most board of elections are, we're talking about small counties, underfunded counties, poor counties being asked to shoulder every election up to the presidential trying to keep yep. up with these technologies, all the risks of hacking. And, and there is some vulnerability there. And I think that the people paying attention to this stuff, a lot of academics would say, Congress needs to get serious about, about making sure our elections are more secure and that there actually is enough funding so that everyone from the largest well-off counties to the ones who are poorest actually can manage all the, all the processes required and also do it securely. And that's another key part of it. Uh, and the, 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 the title is obviously The People's House, and I think people get in it quickly and realize there's a lot of irony in the title. It, it, it was de- yeah. The house was designed to be the people's house. But with gerrymandering, especially, the point of it is it's become maybe the least the least reflective of the citizens of any level of politics because the voice of the people is basically not relevant to the results of the of the election. Ironically, the presidential elections now and the Senate elections have more unpredictability and more you know more need to reach out to people than almost every congressional race. And the entire right. purpose of the House originally, as you talked about, was this was supposed to be the body that was closest to the people. Right. Uh, now I think it's the furthest from him. Well, the, the re-election rate sometimes starts uh, looking like Saddam Hussein elections. So uh, right. we're going we're no, exactly. to have to go to a break, David, but then we'll come back. I'll tell people a few things that uh, great things have been said about your book, and then we can move on. I want to ask you about politics in Ohio and around the country. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show, 888-6-LESLIE. 
And we're back. This is Cliff Schechter. I'm here filling in for Leslie Marshall on the great Leslie Marshall Show. We are lucky enough to have on with us uh, the chairman of the Ohio Democratic Party, an author, former Hamilton County Commissioner, which is where we're sitting right now, and, and numerous other titles. David, are you with us? I am. Excellent. I thought, you know, we're talking about your great book, and so I thought we'd read what one person had to say about it, and then we can talk a little politics, too. But here we got a good okay, quote. Great. For political and current event junkies, this book is a heart-pounding must-read. I almost missed the flight connection because I just could not put it down. David Pepper has written an irresistible page-turner that combines mystery and thrill, politics and power. When you get your copy, clear your schedule. You won't be able to do anything else! Exclamation point. That's from former governor of Michigan Jennifer Granholm. Not bad. Yeah, I was excited about her, uh, what she had to say. Uh, we, you know, we've gotten a good response to... You know, again, one one reason I wrote it is I, I think there's such an appetite for real-world politics. You see yep. it as people, you know, binge-watch Scandal and House of Cards, but there's just not that many books out there that actually capture, I think, the heart of, of politics on the ground. And Especially from people like you who've the been story. there, you know? Yeah, I, I, mean, a, I think... you know, and, and something that's close enough to realistic that is believable, uh, but also exciting, and you know, one one reviewer thought it read a little bit like um, what was the book that Joel Klein wrote about ten years ago about the, one of the Clinton. Oh, Primary stuff. Colors, right? Yeah, that, yeah. I, I mean, I've had some good comparisons to the, that kind of book that gets you on the ground in, in in what politics really looks like. And I just, you know, as I as I consume this stuff, I actually don't find that many movies or or books really get into the guts of what politics is about. It, but people are very energized. You know, to look at the people watching every night cable yep. news shows two or three times in a row. They're watching these debates at record levels. There, there are shows out there, but there's not a lot of books that really get you into the ground level you know, view of politics. And that's part of what I try to do. So. You know, it also doesn't paint the prettiest picture. I mean, I'm a big believer that we need to reform a lot of our politics, whether it be criminal justice, I'm sorry, uh, campaign finance reform or yep. gerrymandering, and, and I mentioned the election systems, and and the book gets into that. So you don't leave you don't leave it. Again, the irony is that the title is an ironic one. You, you leave it, hopefully, having read a, a fun plot, but you also leave it, I hope, Understanding, especially if you're not involved in the day to day, that there's some real need for reform, and this was one way, as someone who's really passionate about this stuff, to communicate it to, to people who may not otherwise be paying attention every day to some of these problems. Right. Well, that's great. Well, speaking of your passion, and and now leading the effort here in Ohio, so what, what do you think? Is Hillary gonna gonna win? Do we have some some good opportunities here? Yeah, you know, I, I feel good overall. I think in the end of the day, Ohio is a never-Trump state. Um, I think that was, you know, people forget. He didn't do very well here in the primary. That's um, good He lost pretty badly to Kasich. Um, and I think this is a state where, sure, there's some pockets that, that his message, if not rebutted well, has some has some appeal. Uh, but even there, I think we can we can go back very quickly and say, for all his newfound, you know, love of working people, you know, every time he could find a way to, to get something for cheap, he would do it, whether it was producing goods in low-wage countries or, you know, skirting the immigration laws, whether it was bringing models here or people to build Trump Towers. This guy was always looking to 
shortchange oh. workers yeah. uh, and to cut costs. And then, of course, he built middle-class families with things like Trump University. So, so uh, you know, we have to rebut his message. But bigger picture, I just think that, you know, this is a state where even Republicans generally are a little more moderate. And I think that's why he was rejected so badly in the primary. And I think in the end, yeah. that's why a lot of Republicans like Kasich, even like even conservatives like Shannon Jones, who wrote Senate Bill 5, aren't supporting him. And I think at the end of the day, we win a lot of moderate and independent voters who probably voted for Mitt Romney. Yeah, I'm seeing a lot of that. Suburban Columbus. And I think in the end, we probably do win. But it'll be close. Ohio always is. Right. Well, PPP poll today had it at four points, which I felt pretty good about. If you think President Obama won here the second time by three. So we're already looking at that. The field... As we know, we've read about their field game, which is doesn't exist. They're Hamilton County. I think they're out in Westchester here, out for people who aren't here. Out well, out, way out in the burbs, in like a you know a, a, some sort of a shack with a couple of volunteers. I mean, they're not yeah. they're not doing anything no, along got, those lines. We had just just two weeks ago, we were training eighty new field staff, just hired. That we think is bigger That's than great. Trump's entire field staff nationally that we trained in one three day period. So wow. we're now up at, you know, well over 300. We've had a field operation on the ground since last October. And, you know, assuming a close election, and Ohio is always close, uh, that yep. on-the-ground operation, it's how Obama ends up winning. It's how we will end up winning. And as you said, you know, four or five in Ohio uh, is a route. Now, I, it's yeah, it really closer. is. Let's be clear. I, no one, no one's getting overconfident. I think no, no, I'm not. Everybody better Trump come out. Up. Yeah. We, we, Everybody Trump settles down for a couple of days. It, it gets a little tighter, and then that's right because people. He reminds people how over the top he is. But that's exactly right. So, so we've got one more minute. I just want to say one more thing, which is, and give you a chance to quickly answer, which is, you've done a great job. I think here, a lot of people are saying now you're recruiting a bench. You know, we let a lot of people lose. I've got in the past before you became chairman. I've got Aftab Perival, who's running for county clerks, coming on later, which I'm pretty excited about. Mm-hmm. Oh, good. His story. Um, I think he's got a great background story to refute. Uh, right. But in any case, you think with the bench, we're going to add to it? Yeah, absolutely. we got some wonderful county candidates like Aftab Perival, Denise Threehouse. We've got a really important race for prosecutor in, in a number of counties. We've got great state house candidates. So, so, so two things that, that drive us at the Ohio Democratic Party. We're about Party. to get cut off, One, David, so say it quickly. Okay, we always have to build that bench. Cliff Schechter, I am guest hosting for the great Leslie Marshall on the Leslie Marshall Show. Hope you've enjoyed us so far, our great conversation with David Pepper. We now have another great conversation to go to. Um, on the line right now with us, we've had, we have Vitold Skerczynski, who's the, the president of the Social Security Council of the American Federation of Government Employees. And we're going to talk with him uh, about, well, Attempts to backdoor cut Social Security by cutting the money that goes to the administrators who take care of Social Security, make sure checks get paid and the rest. So, Vitold, are you with me? Yes, I am. How are you, my friend? I'm good. Thanks for inviting me on the show. Well, my pleasure. This is kind of an important story, don't you think? I do think so. 
I think uh, what's happening here is uh, uh, there's not a lot of discussion in, uh, amongst candidates running for office about Social Security, but in actuality, uh, Republicans in Congress are, are uh, attempting to, especially the House, are attempting to uh, cut rather severely the administrative expenses that goes to uh, the personnel who actually do the work at Social Security, taking and processing claims from the American public. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, I mean, in the end, if you look at it, if you can't actually cut Social Security itself, which they've tried, <clears throat> oh, I don't know, dozens of times, I think, at this point, uh, you cut money to the guys who actually take care of the checks, and maybe you end up creating some inefficiencies and, oh, I don't know, people don't get paid their checks, and maybe you save money that way? Well, you know, the... The work that we do is is vital to um, millions of people in terms of um, them filing for Social Security retirement, disability, and survivor's benefits in SSI. People, Many people rely on that as their sole or primary source of income. Right. Uh, if you make it difficult for people to file those claims, and if you make it difficult for the employees to process those claims causing delays, it will cause uh, a severe adverse effect on the folks who are, uh, are counting on uh, their Social Security benefits that they've been paying tax on for their entire working lives. Right. And when you're saying severe adverse effect, for example, I'm looking here at an article that was in the Washington Post that pointed out that we, were, we could be looking at two-week furloughs for all employees. Yeah, the House, right? uh, the House Appropriations Committee voted to uh, cut the um, the appropriation that we currently have by 263 million dollars, and um, we are currently uh, anyone who's been to a social security office could uh, attest to the fact that we have standing room only crowds. We have short staff as it is. We're having an overload of work because of the emergence of the baby boomers. Well, hasn't the, uh, the uh, budget shrunk? I don't mean to interrupt you, but the budget shrunk by about 10% since 2010, if I'm right. Is that correct? Yes, it has, and our work has, has skyrocketed for, for two reasons. The, the uh, baby boomers have come of age and are filing for retirement, and the closer people get to retirement, they tend to become disabled, so a lot more disability claims. And also, uh, because of the economy, because of um, uh, the fall in the economy, uh, in 2007 and 8, um, a lot of people became unemployed, and those who are close to retirement age who may have not uh, been ha having trouble working because of disabilities or filing, have filed for disabilities. So we've gotten a lot of work, and uh, it's been a pattern of cuts in terms of our staff and our administrative budget. Right. I mean, I was reading that President Obama was actually trying to, to increase uh, the the budget, if I'm correct. Yeah, the right? president's like budget. Five hundred million. Yeah, the president's budget, which uh, which we support, the union uh, that represents Social Security employees supports. He he proposed an increase of uh, about nine hundred eighty six million dollars, and that would take into account not only inflation, but also would provide uh, restore some of the staff that has been cut. Uh, since 2010 because of Congress's uh, decision to uh, uh, reduce administrative expenses in Social Security. And, and we have currently some of the impacts of this. If, if uh, the average processing time 
for individuals who file an appeal on a disability claim is about 550 days. Now, that means that, you know, when you file a disability claim, an initial claim, it takes about 120 days to process, and the first appeal, maybe another 120 days. Uh, So on top of that, 550 days for to get a hearing before an administrative law judge you're, it, the average time for an individual to get uh, a decision on that kind of a, a case is over two years right now and the agency's trying you know they've convinced the president to provide some more resources so they can hire more judges and support staff to reduce those processing times but congress in the house um, decided that I guess that's not important, that people ought to wait longer. It's amazing. I mean, look, you've, you, we've, we've gone through these battles before. As you pointed out, if I'm correct, right, the majority of people who are on Social Security, pretty large, uh, large amount, I think you just said it earlier, this is the only income they get to rely on. And so someone's going to have to sit around for two years and figure out a way to live while they're, while they're uh, fighting it out. Uh, with you know, because of underfunding and God knows what else, what other kind of games that these guys are playing in the house? Right. Well, imagine if you're disabled and can't work, and and uh, you have to wait for two years for a decision on a on a, your claim to get benefits while you're uh, not working. Obviously, a lot of people uh, have lost their homes. It's affected uh, their families, uh, divorces. Uh, there have been some suicides reported because of uh, people having no income while they're waiting. So it, 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 when it gets down to, to people, uh, you know, Congress may be thinking in the abstract that, you know, the, the federal spending is too high, we want to cut uh, expenditures, but the reality is that affects people, that affects people's ability to survive, that affects people's ability to, to pay their rent, to pay their mortgage, to buy food, and uh, it's an outrage that Congress would uh, cut uh, administrative expenses for an agency that's struggling to provide these benefits to people who paid their taxes for them their entire working lives. Yeah, I mean, it does. It makes you wonder uh, sometimes if these guys, once they've spent enough time going to very nice cocktail parties and uh, and never having to worry about where, where, where their food's coming from on any given day, if they, if they even remember or have any idea what it's like for people that that you know, while they play these games, people are are, are not able to get the, the food that they're able to subsist on. Yeah, um, we've done some lobbying on the Hill. Um, we had a legislative conference last month, or I guess two months now, uh, and primarily about this issue. And even Republicans in the Senate are 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 don't understand what the House Appropriations Committee is doing in cutting the Social Security. Uh, administrative budget. The Senate has uh, voted, Appropriations Committee voted to increase the budget by $300 million, still quite wow. short of the President's request and not, not enough for inflation, which would allow the agency to at least continue operating without furloughs and without reducing office hours, etc. But what the House did, and it was a straight party line vote, uh, Republicans voted to, to cut the budget. There were amendments introduced Congressman Quigley from Chicago introduced an amendment in their deliberations to try to get the uh, House Appropriations Committee to adopt the president's budget, and it was rejected on a party-line vote. So the Republicans in the House appear to be uh, not interested in uh, properly funding the agency so that we can uh, service the American public. Well, that's nice of them. It fits well with everything else they've done, doesn't it? 
Um, Vito, we're, we're going to go to a break, but we're going to come back and talk more about this. I want to talk about Paul Ryan, too, because not everybody knows his background and how he used survivor benefits to help himself, uh, as one should. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show. Give her a call now at 888-6-LESLIE. Leslie Marshall, who is off doing something fun somewhere. Um, this is the Leslie Marshall Show, and we talk some politics and some policy. Right now, we are on the phone with Vitold Skierczynski, who is the president uh, of the Social Security Council of the American Federation of Government Employees. Vitold, are you with me, my friend? Yes, I am. So when we're going to break, um, I always find this ironic, <clears throat> excuse me, and I was kind of interested in your thoughts, but... You know, it was the Appropriations Committee that passed this, right? Mm -hmm. um, yes, Paul, Paul Ryan there, right? Yeah. Um, it's always ironic to me that uh, that Paul Ryan, somebody who sadly, I mean, sadly, for, if this happened to any of us, lost his father uh, before he went to college, but he benefited from survivor benefits, which is what the program is there for. It was used exactly as intended, and, and, and he was able to go and get a good education. What, do you have any idea what's up with him and his, his seeming need to attack Social Security constantly? Yeah, it always amazes me that people who benefit from the program turn against it. I mean, Paul Ryan has been uh, an advocate for privatization. He presented a plan back in 2010 that would have required uh, uh, individuals to invest in private investment accounts. So we know about the volatility of the stock market. Uh, and the yeah. danger that that would occur if people were allowed to take their earned Social Security benefits and in, and invest them. Uh, so uh, Social Security has, you know, the trust fund has been solvent since its inception, still is. Uh, to mess with it in that way would uh, and take risks with um, people's uh, retirement and disability pensions is really uh, dangerous. And that's what Paul Ryan has done. And his under his leadership in the House, um, he's his Appropriations Committee. Uh, he appoints the chair. They're operating under a Ryan budget. There, uh, their their decision to cut Social Security uh, uh, administrative funds not only will it result in furloughs, but uh, the agency has indicated to us that they would have to reduce office hours to make it. Uh, the, uh, make the public less available to uh, uh, Social Security employees less available to the public to file claims or do other Social Security business. They would have to start closing community-based offices in order to save enough money on that kind of draconian budget to, uh, to survive. Uh, they would eliminate all overtime, which means that overtime is used by Social Security employees to process the claims that the public files. Otherwise, they'd, they'd be... Uh, There'd be even more delays. So um, Paul Ryan's uh, budget and his um, appropriations committee 
uh, is really acting to the detriment of anyone who's uh, disabled, uh, a retiree, or um, or the poor, uh, who would be less uh, able to file for SSI benefits if uh, if we had reduced office hours and, and less people to take their claims. Yeah, well, so it's nice that Paul Ryan, unlike Donald Trump, isn't getting up and actively mocking people who are disabled. He's just cutting money from them that they need to spend That's on right. food. It's, Which it's may, slightly, may actually be slightly worse. more subtle. <laughs> yeah, he's, he is slightly more subtle. All right, I figured we'll, we'll work in. Uh, we've got a caller on the line who wanted to talk about getting his disability in 96. His name is Tim. He's from Tennessee. It seems like he was able to get it a lot faster, approved in five to six weeks back then. So I thought we'd bring Tim in and see what uh, what he thinks about things today. Tim, are you with us? Hello, Cliff Shekta. How are you, my friend? Your favorite Internet stalker from Tennessee. Um Hey, yeah. I know you. <laughs> yes, sir. Um, and hello to your guest. Um, I was just calling about this subject because in, in 96, I went into a small Social Security office in a small town in Tennessee, and uh, which was open at the time. I didn't have to wait in line, didn't need an appointment. I was prepared with some of my doctor's names and numbers, and um, they took all my information. It took me about less than an hour, a half an hour, to fill out an application and uh, whatever numbers and stuff I didn't have, she looked it up right there. And yep. I had a decision, and I don't remember. It was between four and six weeks, and I was approved. And uh, it, it wouldn't go that way today, I, I don't think. And I just want to say about Paul Ryan, I think he's a disciple of Ayn Rand. Maybe he's trying to follow in her footsteps in reverse because she right. got her disability payments later in life, you know. Yeah, she hated them until she needed them. And he, he got them early in life, so, you know, he's just following their footsteps and is just trying to take away everybody else's. And, you know, I was in fear of getting my benefits cut this year because they had that in mind, to cut disability benefits from people that had earned them. And it would have been tough on a lot of people. Who paid in their entire lives. Yeah, I, I mean, I, don't, I mean, you know, it's bad enough that they've done that numerous times. They've tried to actually cut the benefits. Um, directly, and they failed. It's another thankfully. part of the puzzle of the starve the beast. That's why they want to cut. They that want is to cut exactly the, right. The whole they want to starve so, the beast. And so, what Vitold has been saying, you know, about well, let's just make it work less efficiently. Doesn't that sound like we can't stop family planning services? So let's just cut funding and make it so they can't operate. Right? We can't yes. stop. You know, we can't change laws to be even more ridiculous around guns, so let's just defund the ATF as they've done and not give them the money to do their job. This is, as you said, this is starve the beast at its best or worst. It's a way of making sure that if you don't like the actual laws, as, as the majority of us do when, they, and when they've been passed, you can get there another way, which is, whoops, we don't have enough money to operate and actually do anything you need to do. They're trying to do that, obviously, with the EPA around the environment, too. Uh, this is a this is a sort of something they often go to now, isn't it? Because they can do that with the glare of the light, not as much on them as when they're actually out there change, trying yeah. to change a policy. The more the more inefficient Social Security becomes because of lack of funding, the less confidence the American public will have in the Social Security system, and the more likely they'll be uh, uh, more apt to consider proposals to privatize the system. In a poly, in the public's mind, and some of the right-wing-minded people, that could, because they see me as being on the dole. You know, I'm on the dole right now, even though I can't work. I've been on disability for 20 years. What do they expect me to do? 
go out and collect coins, coins in a in a tin can. Uh, I don't well, get it. No, there was a system. The reason we we put this system together, and I think it's been by most accounts the most successful social insurance program of all time. And yeah, it, in, it in, initially, yeah, and in initially, you know, limited in the way, and it's how uh, we could use it. But then spousal benefits were added, and survivor benefits. I'm sure Vitold could give us a a whole class on it, on, on how much it was it, it was improved over the years, and it's become essential to so many people like yourself. Um, but it seems like that, that that these guys, when it when it comes to to this kind of thing, they, people just become a number. They don't pay attention yes. to specific cases. You're just a number. Let's cut those numbers. The uh, disability program, you know, most most um, claims are denied. It's not easy to uh, get disability benefits. The requirement uh, to be uh, declared disabled is that you have to be disabled to the point that you can't do any work for at least a year. So you have to have a significant disability to get approved. So if, for anyone to imply that um, social that people on disability benefits uh, are just people who don't want to work is really false because there is a rigorous uh, mechanism that we go through on examining medical records and oftentimes uh, getting uh, our own uh, medical uh, advisors to uh, uh, look at uh, claimants to uh, and, and test them to determine whether they in fact are disabled. Yeah, um, that's exactly right. Let me let's also bring in. We've got Helen from Ithaca on line three. I think she wants to comment on Paul Ryan using Social Security. Are you with us, Helen? Oh yes. Hi. Good afternoon. Hi. Um, yeah. Are you from I, Ithaca, I think... New York? By the way. Yes. Yes. Uh, well, I just want to make sure it was this. Okay, but I'm you're from in Chicago, well, uh, but I live in Ithaca. Yeah, that's right. No, no, beautiful town. My mom went to college there, so I visited it oh. often as a child. Very nice. Oh, sorry, I I'll let you go Cornell. with your question. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, Paul Ryan had all of his staff actually read like Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged, all of Ayn Rand's. I mean, and this guy who claims to be raised Roman Catholic, this great altar boy, he's trying to like like hurt all of these people who need. They need help. They need charity. That's not like what a good altar boy should be doing. <laughs> he seems to have missed the whole social justice part of Catholicism. Yeah, and you and you shouldn't be reading the you know the books of this atheist Ayn Rand, who at the end of her life she had lung cancer and she collected on Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security, and she was this objectivist, you know, supposedly some expert in epistemology, which I I don't think she knows what the word means, but. So she didn't go golf at the end there when it came down to it, did she? She didn't. No, no, she took all the money in. She, <laughs> yes, exactly. She took she took whatever, any social program, if they could find a new one that would give her money, she'd take from there too. Well, it's a lot easier when you're, you know, you're making money off books and you're more famous when you're younger to, to discount the experience of others. And oops, suddenly when you have that experience, uh, it's changed, you know, and you may need it yourself. It's a good lesson for all of us. We are heading towards a hard break. I want to thank everyone for being here. I want to thank Tim. I'd like to thank you, Helen. I'd like to thank Vitold for joining us. Uh, and we'll go on to the next hour. Stay with us, folks. It just gets more exciting. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show, 888-6-LESLIE. 
Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people, live nationwide and streaming live at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. back once again. This is Cliff Schechter. I will be your host today. I'm filling in for the great Leslie Marshall, who is off doing fun things, I'm sure. We've had a bunch of fantastic guests today. We've talked some politics with David Pepper. We've talked some policy with my friend Vitold. And now, well, we may talk a little bit of both. We'll see. But we've got a great guest coming up, a friend of mine, which is neither here nor there, but great guy. His name is Aftab Perival. He's running for the Hamilton County Clerk of Courts. And we're going to talk a little bit about his story because I think it's just about the best refutation of what Donald Trump said last night that exists. Aftab, are you with me, man? Cliff, hey, it's, uh, it's Aftab. Thank you so much for having me on. I, I really appreciate this opportunity. Oh, of course, of course. How's the race been going? The race is going great. There's uh, 68 days, but who's counting? <laughs> it's uh, it's my first not. race, so I'm, uh, I'm learning a lot, uh, meeting a lot of new folks here in Hamilton County, which, as you know, is the swing county within the swing state. So it's a very exciting time to be on the ballot. That's right. It all goes on in this area, Aftab, as you know. Well, um, we are critically important. There's no, <laughs> no doubt about that. You know, but I wanted to have you on because I, 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 I you, talk a little bit also about a very different area. Um, which is, you know, your your story, your background, which is which is incredible, and I think is really important to the future of this country. I'm not kidding that people with with you know backgrounds like yours run for office, and, and I think that what Donald Trump did last night with that vitriol and the anger and and the hysterics and the you know is is perhaps make some people feel like they're not American because who they are and what they look like and where they're from. And you've done a great job, I think, of, of taking on that issue, making it funny, um, and really sort of using it as a way to connect with people here. So I thought maybe you could tell everyone a little bit about your story of how, how your family arrived in this country, which is fantastic. Well, th- yeah, thank you, Cliff. That's, that's a very kind uh, introduction. My, my, my story, not unlike all of our stories, uh, really starts with my parents. Uh, my mom was born in Tibet, um, and was forced to flee her country when the communist Chinese took over. So literally with everything that they owned and on foot, my grandparents and my mother walked through the Himalayas, through Nepal, and wow. into India where she grew up as a refugee. Uh, against all odds, uh, she got an education. She made it to college where she met my father. Um, they got married um, in, in India. My father is Indian. And, uh, and the young couple wanted to come to the New World. They wanted to come to the United States. So my dad looked at a map of our country and cliff from sea to shining sea, from New York to California. This man literally could have gone anywhere, and he chose Beaver Creek, Ohio. <laughs> I have no idea what he was thinking, but uh, it, it turned out to be an, an incredibly uh, serendipitous choice. Uh, I was born and raised in Dayton, Ohio. 
uh, public schools throughout, and um, and that's why I'm so I'm so proud of of my heritage. I'm proud of my name, Aftab. It actually means sunshine, and and I'm mm-hmm. proud to be an American. And and in my view, in my opinion, in my firmly held belief, uh, what what makes me uh, both Tibetan and Indian does not prohibit me from being uh, truly and 100 percent genuinely American. We can be all of those things at the same time, and that's what Donald Trump just doesn't understand. What makes our country great is that it really is a country of immigrants, be they refugees or, or immigrants, because it really is a country made up of people who came here because where they were was less free. Uh, and Donald yeah. Trump just doesn't understand that fundamental American truth. Right. I mean, you'd think your story would be the ultimate story to escaping communist China. And your, once your mom, as a refugee, met your dad, they could have stayed in India, which would have been fine. I'm sure you would have had a great life there, too. But they looked and they wanted to come to America. And you come here and, you know, I mean, with your background being part Tibetan, part Indian, I don't think there is anything any more American than that, quite frankly, because that's that's what's the, that's what it makes to me. That's what makes us all interesting, you know. My part of my family came over from escaped, uh, you know, persecution in in Austria and Germany in the 1850s and 60s. Another part of my family came over in you know literally around 1904 or five, early 20th century, and they came over to escape persecution in 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 the, the Ukraine and Russia. And, you know, somehow that all became a mix that uh, became wow. me, for better or worse. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but you know, that, you know that being Russian, you know, having a Russian background, a German background, an Austrian background doesn't make me not an American again. I think that makes me more American. And I think your, your story, like so many of immigrants who come over even more recently, um, has added so much more to the United States. It's made it a more interesting place, has, has you know, given us all more to learn, to understand, to... And so that's why I feel like, you know, when I was thinking today of who I wanted to have on here, I thought to myself, I mean, and look at you now. I'm sorry. I'm not your PR agent. I promise people. But, um, but I mean, you know, you've gone to, you went to a great law school and you're, you're, are you, do you still, you're still practicing law at Procter and Gamble? Or do you take some time off so that you could run? Yeah. So, um, I'm, I'm currently the global brand attorney for Olay at Procter and Gamble, the skincare company, which, uh, which makes me a beauty attorney, which is ridiculous. But, uh, I, I, I am running in my first. I need race. some help, man. I may have to come talk to you. <laughs> uh, you look great, Cliff. Uh, I, I am running in my first race. Um, and so the, the county, Hamilton County is just, it's, it's really large. For some of your, uh, listeners who don't know Ohio, it's a million people and geographically it's quite large. So for, for my first race, uh, I'm really, I'm really going all in. I'm really putting in the work, and part of that is having the time to do it. So I've actually taken a six-month unpaid leave of absence from Pro- from Procter and Gamble because I do believe that the clerk of courts, while lesser known, uh, is critically important to the administration of justice and 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 criminal justice reform. You know, we we talk a lot about it on the national stage, but where we can actually make an uh, an, an impact and a transformative effect is on the local level, and I, I do believe the. The clerk of courts is, is a great start to that. But I, I want to touch on, on something you said earlier, that, that that's mm-hmm. what makes us uniquely American, where we came from in our multi, multicultural background. And I think that's true, but conservatives always talk about, you know, what makes us safer and what makes us stronger. And I believe it's, it is our diversity. It is the fact that we are a polyglot nation, that we, that we welcome everyone, no matter where they're from or what they look like or who they love, that they have an opportunity to, to succeed here in America if they work hard for it. And my family is no different. 
My father had a, a graduate degree, but when he moved to the United States, his first job was bagging groceries. And he worked wow. all the way up into, uh, into the middle class. And part of that was not only uh, the, the inclusion of America, but also the schools. So I am yes. where I am today, not only because of America and, and because of my parents, but because of the public schools. Cliff, I've never been to a private school in my life, from kindergarten all throughout law school, state-funded schools. And, and, and that is right. really, really what is so special about America. If you work hard, you have access to a great education, and you can make this country even better. Uh, and that's what's driven me crazy in so many cases with conservatives. I think of, you know, Scott Walker in Wisconsin going after that terrific uh, system, that university system they have there. And in so many other cases, uh, cutting, you know, funding for for university, uh, for public school systems across the country. I mean, on every level, right? We've got, so we've got some amazing public universities here. Ohio State, which I believe is where you may have gone for law school. That's right. The um, Ohio State University. Class. The Ohio State. I'm, I apologize. That's right. i got to get the T in front. Absolutely. I'm get in trouble for that. My wife went to, to Miami, you know, here in Ohio, which is a phenomenal public university. There's, there's so many. Um, and, and if we forget the value of that, I think we also, as you just said, forget a lot of what makes us who we are. Uh, I want to ask quickly, although we may have to go to a break soon, but before we do that, I'd like to ask you, and we can continue after, I mean, what is it like for your, for your parents or even for you when you see Donald Trump saying stuff like this? Does it feel personal? Does it feel, um, especially with, with the racially coded and not always so coded language, yeah. is that something that, that really kind of stings? It's incredibly personal, Cliff. I mean, this is, this is the most personal election in my lifetime. And, and, and it's not just because I'm on the ballot. Uh, it's because I, I'm the son of a refugee. And if I wasn't, I'd be the son of immigrants. So when Donald yep. Trump, as he did yesterday, demeans immigrants, demeans refugees, he's talking about me. He's talking about my mom. He's talking about my dad. Donald Trump is demeaning my family. And it's more than just his, his, his divisive rhetoric. It's his hateful policy pr- uh, propositions. Donald Trump yeah. is against birthright citizenship. The only reason I'm eligible to serve as a federal prosecutor, to, to, to run for office as a citizen in this, in this great country, is because of birthright citizenship. In, in Donald Trump's world, I'm not a citizen. And, and I, right. I don't believe that the country would be better off if me and a whole generation of, of diverse people living in, in, in this country were not citizens. I couldn't agree more. We're going to go to a break, and we're going to pick it up right there. Stay right here, folks, and we'll talk more with Aftab. You're listening to The Leslie Marshall Show. Truth for all sides of the spectrum. 888-6-LESLIE. Welcome back, and good afternoon. This is Cliff Schechter. I'm filling in for Leslie Marshall off on break today. This is the Leslie Marshall Show, and we are talking to the great Aftab Perival. <laughs> Aftab, you're with me. Yes, sir. I don't know how great I am, but uh, I'm here. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, the modesty. Um, 
Well, when we, we went to break, you were talking about something I think is very important because, again, to me it feels so uncomfortable um, and, and it's so distressing, some of the attacks that Trump's been willing to launch uh, because it encourages others too. It encourages yeah. others to see people who are as American uh, as apple pie, if that's still American, um, to, you know, to, to, to suddenly see people as different, suddenly see people as uh, some are better than others, some belong to more than others. Um, on the same level, I think in, an, in another sort of nefarious way, and this is why I'm so happy about what you're doing, uh, it leads people like yourself uh, sometimes. I mean, you're a courageous guy. I don't think it, it would stop you, but it may stop others from running for office or getting involved in the process because of that, because they're nervous now, because they're being told they're not as American as other people. And, you know, in the state we're sitting in, in Ohio, the demographics are very similar to the country as a whole uh, when it comes to African-American population, white population. But the one thing is on the, the Latino, Latina population, and if I'm correct, too, the Asian population are lower uh, than the average. So what you're doing is actually pretty important because others see you do it and say, you know, I can do that, too. Um, yeah. I don't know if you want to speak at all to that. I, I really do, because, you know, we talk a lot about Donald Trump, particularly his, his xenophobic, his divisive, his hateful speech yesterday. It, it's, it's easy to lose track that this election, this, the, 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 the real stakes of this election are the values and priorities of this country. We are either a country that is inclusive or we are not. We are either a, a country that celebrates diversity or we are not. And, and that's really what Donald Trump represents. He represents going backwards. He represents a time where uh, it was okay to be a homogeneous community, where, where diversity wasn't celebrated. And, and, and I think what you've, what you've said is absolutely right. Instead of hearing his rhetoric and hiding under our couch, which, believe me, a lot of times I want to do, it's so critically important for diverse candidates and even, even candidates who are not diverse, who, who really em, embody and embrace inclusivity uh, and, and pro pro progressing our country forward to stand up and to say, Donald Trump, you are wrong. Your view on, on what is American and what is un-American is absolutely antithetical to the values of this country. Uh, and and in, the, in the marketplace of ideas, I believe Donald Trump will lose. And so it, it's critically important for folks like myself and other young diverse candidates to stand up and to be counted. President Obama is incredibly inspiring to me because he showed me that a brown guy with a funny name can win, can absolutely win. And, and now, <laughs> even more than ever, it's critically important for, uh, for candidates of color to stand up and to give folks who are maybe scared of what they don't understand a vision of, of, of brown people, of black people, uh, of people who don't look like them a vision of what they are rather than the caricature that is spewed out by Donald Trump. I mean, yeah, I don't think that could be more right. I look around here, and I, and I do. I think it's so important. You may have looked at Barack Obama and thought, as you said, I can do this. Um, we've got so many candidates that are diverse running. You think of someone like Kamala Harris out in California, who we could have another, we could have another female African-American senator, which would just be, you know, amazing. And it shouldn't have to be amazing. But, you know, we're at a point now where we're bringing more diversity to, to Washington and to the state capitals is incredibly important. And frankly, in your, in your case and others in our county here, 
and you know, then I look at, at even here. You look at something like for the for county commissioner Denise Driehaus, and you've got a woman running. You've got you running. You've got you know uh, what's her, I can't think of her first name. Rice, or, or who's running for the Supreme Court here in Ohio? Another female candidate, Cynthia Just, Rice. Yep. Cynthia, thank you, Cynthia, who seems terrific. And so you don't you don't have uh, uh, you know. You don't have women. You don't have other minorities thinking, I can't do this. They're, they're showing that, yes, they can. There are a lot of great female Senate candidates right now all, all yeah. across the country. So. And, and, and let's, let's, I think sometimes we, we overlook and lose sight of how inspiring our presidential candidate is. Secretary Clinton, the first woman ever nominated by a major party to, to run for office, the most qualified man or woman to ever run for president, just in the same way that President Obama inspired me that a brown guy with a funny name could win. Hillary Clinton is inspiring a whole new generation of people that no matter who they are, what they look like, what their gender is, or who they love, they too can achieve their dreams if they work hard enough. I think that's absolutely right. We have Dean from Buffalo online too. I hope he's still there. And, and he wanted to talk about Trump and immigration and Trump's view uh, towards immigrants, about how apparently he's better than everybody else. Are you with us, Dean? Yep, yep. How are you? Um, I'm doing all right. Um, first of all, are, are you too familiar with the Simpsons and Family Guy, you know, like Mr. Burns and uh, Carter, uh, Peter Schmidt? <laughs> yeah, very much so. Probably and didn't get a lot of work done in college that. because of it. Oh, yeah. Go ahead, sir. As we all did. You know, I think, I think. Um, first of all, I'm not surprised by how Donald Trump's acting because his first comment when somebody asked him why he would make a good president, he goes, "It's because I'm super rich." And you know, when you're like a multi-billion. Multi-billionaire business person, easy enough for me to mm-hmm. say. You're going to see yourself as better than everybody else beyond reproach, and you're going to see your um, employees as um, office furniture. And you're no, not going I, to value I, I, people who are. Well, and he's made it clear. I'm sorry, we got to go quickly because we've got a break coming up. But I'll just say thank you for calling in, Dean. Yeah, I mean, he's made it clear. That, and his family, of course, were immigrants, too, as Aftab and I have been discussing. But his immigrants are better than others because I guess they came earlier and they're whiter and who knows what other reasons. They definitely had worse hair, I'll tell you that. Thanks so much for coming on, Aftab. I appreciate uh, your telling your story here for everybody. fun adventure together. This is Cliff Schechter. I'm filling in for Leslie Marshall. This is indeed the Leslie Marshall Show. Um, Over the next half hour, we're going to talk to a fantabulous, if I can use that word, guest, Paul Waldman. Uh, Before we get to Paul, let me say uh, for the the very interesting gentleman I was just talking to who's running for County Clerk of Courts here in Hamilton County, Aftab Perival, you can go to his website at voteaftab.com. Go say nice things. Maybe even uh, give them some love in terms of uh, financial contribution, whatever uh, works for you. Um, but now, 
Now, the great Paul Waldman, I believe, is with us. I hope he's with us. Paul, are you there? Hi there, Cliff. <laughs> hey, Paul, just so people know, you, uh, there are lots of places you write for these days. You are a plumb liner at the Washington Post. You uh, write regularly for the American Prospect, if I'm correct. you got a column at The Week. Anything else I'm missing? Another five, six publications? That, that's the only regular gig. I only have three. Okay. <laughs> that's still a quality, quality number, and uh, you are one of my favorite uh, – I'm not just saying this because I have you on here, although I chose to have you on, so it would make sense. One of my favorite pundits, because I think you always have a very, even though I know that you've got a, a center left, left bent, you always have a good analysis of any issue at hand, so I can actually learn stuff, which I like to do. Um, so I wanted to ask you something uh, about something you recently wrote, which I thought was pretty cool, and uh, and I was, was checking out. And, and basically, everybody, we're all starting to talk about the debates right now. Um, you have people of different opinions. The Clinton people are already doing their little dance, which is to, uh, we, which of course happens all the time uh, with this kind of stuff where one side says the other side is, is a great debater and they lower their own expectations. So they're kind of trying to do that with Trump now. Um, the Trump side, we don't know where he is from one day to the next. He may be debating, he may not. He may bring in Bannon and Roger Isles to stand behind him or a goose. I don't, I don't really know. What he's going to do, but but why don't you uh, let us know why you think that uh, these debates may be particularly important? Well, you know, there's something kind of strange and artificial about debates to begin with. I mean, if you think about it, a president never has to do this as part of his or her job, right? Like President Obama doesn't go to a summit meeting in Asia and have to you know stand up before some reporters and answer questions and then figure out who won in order to see what kind of uh, an agreement is going to be hashed out. Um, it's right. a performance. Um, but nevertheless, uh, there's something pretty valuable about it in, in at least the fact that we get to look at them for 90 minutes or two hours and hear their, how their minds work and see what their, you know, what, what their analysis of situations is and, and, uh, how they think and, uh, what they really want to emphasize. Um, but my, what, one of the things that I point out is that this year, it seems as though, uh, even if we're going to, you know, end up focusing on did anybody make any gaffes and what were the zingers, there's going to be something uh, extremely revealing about it. And if you look at the reporting that people have done behind the scenes, which obviously is, you know, some of it has to do with what the candidates want to leak out. Uh, but right. the way the two candidates are, are preparing, and I think what, what's going to be in evidence when they actually debate each other, um, is really true to their, to their fundamental selves. Clinton uh, is obviously going into the, into the briefing books and making sure that she's up on all the issues as she usually is. And she's also going about this very meticulous and methodical investigation of Trump, her opponent. Apparently, her uh, aides have been watching all of his previous debate performances and um, doing, you know, kind of a detailed analysis of them to figure out where his weak points are and how they can, uh, you know, what they can use against him. And so she'll be intensely prepared. And right. what have we learned about what Trump is doing to prepare? Well, he's apparently just kind of shooting the breeze with some aids. Not, he says he does not want to do any practice debates. Um, they, they keep apparently like wanting him to do to do that, and they've like even brought in some people who are ready at a moment's notice to play Clinton if he wants to. Do yeah, it. wasn't Laura Ingram going to maybe play Hillary, right? But I guess not now. Yeah, uh, he's, he refuses to do that, 
And basically the only preparation they've done is a couple of sessions where he and some of his chief aides just kind of sit around and talk for a couple of hours. Um, and, uh, and then he's just going to kind of go in and wing it. Um, and so I think that what we'll see is his true self, too. You know, if she is uh, methodical and prepared um, and, you know, not particularly spontaneous, he is going to be uh, impulsive um, and just kind of put himself out there and see what happens. Um, so I think it's going to be revealing. Now, uh, I'm, I, I would predict, and I think maybe, maybe you'd agree with this, I don't know, that uh, it's going to be a bigger challenge for him than it was in the primaries, simply for the, for the reason that it's just the two of them up there. You right. know, during the primary debates, when there were, you know, ten people on stage, or, you know, as it went along, maybe four or five, he could, you know, toss out a couple insults and then kind of hang back while other people talked for a while. Um, and it wasn't all that, uh, really all that intellectually challenging or anything. But with just the two of them, he's going to have to be on it every moment. Um, and he may not be able to get as far with, you know, with uh, the kind of sort of simplistic stuff that he, that he tends to come up with. So it'll be interesting to see. But I think that, you know, we're not going to see some kind of other Trump um, uh, when, the, when those debates happen. And we're not going to see another Clinton that we don't know either. Now, yeah, two things. First, I think I should make clear to people, I've talked about your background uh, as a writer, but you also have a great background as an academic. And while you're particularly qualified for this because you were a uh, professor, a teacher, I, I, I don't know what the right title exactly is, but you at the Annenberg School of Communications at, at UPenn. So you understand this. And when, when we're talking about debates, we're talking about all sorts of campaign communication. This is your thing. Um, just so people know that uh, you're an expert in this area. But I would say secondary, secondarily, um, you know, I do agree with exactly what you're saying. I think this is an extension of, of, a, of an argument you've made in the past, which I think I'm, I'm 90% sure it was you that I read, which is what you get in the campaigns is what you get uh, for, these, for these folks once they're actually elected into office. That the Obama we saw during his campaign for, you know, whether, whatever your feelings are, good or ill, is who we got. The same with Bill Clinton, the same with George W. Bush, and it would be the same with Donald Trump, which, which is why, you know, we're seeing this right now, which is he can either debate or he can sit there and, you know, dump uh, or dip uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken into Taco Bells into chocolate syrup or whatever it is he does for your average meal. And, um, and then he can go and have Dr. Bornstein say that he's like the coolest and strongest specimen ever. Uh, but, no, I mean, seriously, like, I mean, did, you wrote that piece too, am I correct? Yeah. And kind of the... Yeah, and yeah. even if the campaign seems so trivial a lot, you know, we get caught up in these micro-controversies about, like, who committed what gaffe and whose aide said what. By the time it's all over, we really do have a good understanding of who these people are and what the president is going to be. You know, they not only do candidates, do uh, presidents keep most of their promises, or at least try to, um, you know, we're always wondering if are, are, are we seeing the real person or not. But nobody, you know, there hasn't been, haven't been any presidents who, who you know, campaigned as a liberal and then turned into a conservative and said, aha, I fooled you all. You know, that, that kind of thing doesn't happen. And we also kind of see uh, in the way they, they comport themselves, the way the kind of campaign they run, we end up seeing what sort of presidency they're going to have. And you can see that with Obama. You know, he was uh, somebody who uh, was uh, a really turned out to be a, a terrific uh, a candidate in the sort of campaign that he ran, and one of their watchwords was no drama Obama, that they were not right. going to get caught up in the kind of the day-to-day back and forth, that they were going to you know, set out a strategy and stick to it, and we can see that in, in his presidency in times for better or worse. I mean, there are, there are people who criticize him for not being decisive enough, for being too, you know, too calm, too removed, too reserved, but that's who he is, and we saw that yep. 
during the campaign. Um, and you know, I think you can you can argue that about about almost any president is that you, you we do get a pretty good sense of who they are, how they're going to make decisions. Um, and you know, I think we're we're certainly seeing that now with Donald Trump. All right. Well, we're we're heading towards a, a a short break. Let's talk a little bit more about debates and maybe some polls that came out today. And I'd like to get some your overall impressions on what's going on out there. Thanks, Paul. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show. Eight 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 six Leslie. One final time, it is 5.45, which means we got about 15 minutes left. I'm Cliff Schechter, and I'm filling in for Leslie Marshall. This is a Leslie Marshall show. We have with us uh, an expert on communications, debates, a writer, and uh, should I call you a reporter, Paul, or is that uh, a step too far? I only occasionally do reporting, so most of the time I'm just writing. <laughs> yeah. That's like me, too. Sometimes people call me a reporter, and I, I'm, I almost recoil a bit. Not because there's anything wrong with it, but I think it gives me too much credit. Um, yeah, I'd agree. I mean, the, the people who are out there with their notebooks with the, on the drudgery of the campaign trail, they deserve a lot of credit for what they do, and I would not have to do that. <laughs> <laughs> Good man. We're going to bring in quickly, I want to talk about a little bit about polls, but a little bit more about the debates. We're going to bring in Ishmael from Virginia, who has a comment, maybe a question, too, on, on whether Trump can get an advantage through his ridiculous behavior, as we know in debates. Are you there, Ishmael? Yes, I'm here. Thank you, Cliff, and Paul, taking my call. Oh, absolutely. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. As a Hillary supporter, I'm somewhat concerned uh, about the debate because I think Trump might hijack the whole debate, you know, by being very disruptive and then not following the rules. And we kind of saw a little bit of that during the uh, primaries. Do you think I should be concerned about why don't you uh, answer this, Paul? I'm interested in what you have to say. Well, you know, it's an interesting question. Uh, he, one of the things that uh, that I think Trump does uh, in situations like this, but in a lot of situations, is he tries to take control. Um, you know, uh, Josh Marshall, who who uh, runs Talking Points Memo, has talked about this being his form of dominance politics. Whenever there is a negotiation or anything like that, he wants to impose his will on everybody mm -hmm. else. And that's how he kind of exactly. proves that he's the, he's the alpha male. And one of the ways you can do that in a, in a situation like a debate is to break the rules, um, to kind of come in and subvert the thing that everyone has accepted as how things are going to work. And that kind of throws everyone off. And you can yes. look like you're the one who's setting the terms. Exactly. Um, exactly. And they always have this kind of protracted, silly negotiation about what the debate is going to be, you know, how high are the yeah. podium is going to be and how many seconds is each person going to get to talk. And inevitably, you know, they, they ring the bell, but people keep talking. And, uh, and if there are, there are things that they're not supposed to do, like ask the other person questions, they end up doing it anyway. The rules are always broken in these things, um, because in part because the rules themselves are kind of silly. You know, they're, they're meant to keep things very, very controlled when it might actually be a lot more interesting um, and enlightening if they actually got to do things like ask each other questions and if it was a little more freewheeling. Um, yeah. But it's true that, you know, if you were Donald Trump, you might think, well, you know, Clinton is so kind of controlled and uh, everything has to be pre-planned with her that she might get talked lost off her game if Trump, you know, went over time or, or asked her a question or, uh, you know, 
went over and shoved a paper in her face. Well, I was going to say, that's what I see. Yeah, I was going to say that. You got my question, Paul, because when you think of his whole thing is dominance dominance politics, as you said. I read Josh Marshall, too, and I think that's put very well. So he likes to dominate, and you think of that moment with Rick Lazio and how much that hurt him when he, you know, back in 2000 when he thrust that piece of paper. I mean, so you got the dominance guy on one side. You've got, you know, people already talking about the sexism of a guy who is – you know, been married multiple times, said all the things he said about women. He puts people like Roger Isles and Steve Bannon on his staff who are not known as people who treat women very well. Um, do you think that he could overstep his bounds in this? I mean, I, I shouldn't even ask you if you think he could. He definitely could. But do you think that, that we could end up having that kind of situation where the press covered it as such? Yeah, absolutely. And it depends, uh, of course, on how Clinton reacts to it. And one of the interesting things that, that she and her people are apparently trying to figure out is, can they bait him into doing something where he loses his cool? You know, they've, they've identified the, the areas that he is uh, particularly touchy about. Um, more than anything else, it's, it's about whether or not he's, uh, he's as wealthy as he says he is. You know, it's, it's an mm-hmm. interesting thing if you look over Trump's whole career, that that is the thing that really that gets him to sue people, that there's nothing that he's more sensitive about than whether or not he's really as rich as he claims. Um, and so they're, like, right now, I promise you, they are trying to figure out a way where she can say something that will needle him on that and make him lose control. And so, you know, both sides are trying to figure out ways where they can, where they can kind of seize control by, by making the other person go to pieces. That is, uh, that's interesting, too. So, okay, and I think some of this will be influenced. One of the things that really seems to upset Trump is because he values himself, his self-worth, um, and basically everything about him is based upon who's looking at him and paying attention to him at that moment. So it's the ratings, it's polls, it's all, what have you. He's tweeted out a few polls that have shown him doing better than, let's say, what the average polls are showing. But there was another one that came out today. I'm trying to think. Was it NBC that showed Hillary Clinton up seven points? It fits well with Quinnipiac and some others that that seem to be in the sort of six, five to seven point range, you know, in a two and, and a little bit lower. It seems like if it's if you put Jill Stein and and Gary Johnson in there. But although Jill, Jill Stein is not going to be on ballots in some states, for example, like North Carolina, where with times already passed, so a few important states. So that's worth keeping in there too. In any case. What do you think about polling right now? Um, also, a, a slew of state polls came out. Hillary up a little bit. For PPP, who I tend to trust, a little bit in North Carolina. Four points in Ohio, which I thought was more than I expected. Five in Pennsylvania, less than I expected, although most of the others are showing it higher. Down only three in Arizona. You think the lack of a ground game for Trump, and now that Hillary's going on TV, could, could pull that one out? I know I'm asking lots of questions here, so pick any of them, Paul. <laughs> You know, it's it's possible. The, the conventional wisdom among people who study this is that is that the ground game really only makes a difference at the margins, maybe between one and three points. But of course, if you're talking about a race that could be decided by less than that uh, in a, in a given state, well, that could be the difference. And Trump is extraordinarily behind in terms of setting up that ground game. He he believed, and he was right about this in the primaries, that he didn't really need a traditional campaign organization. He could just kind of go out, do a bunch of rallies, get on TV, and then win. But the the thing about when you're doing you when you're doing it in a more traditional way, as Clinton did, is that you mm-hmm. kind of set up this infrastructure as you've gone through the primaries that you can then use in the general election. And so she has hundreds of campaign offices all over the place, and he has very, very few. And on election day, in a place, in a state where it's really, really close, that could, that could make a, the, well, all I'm, the difference. 
I'm telling you right here, for example, in Hamilton County, there are a couple stories about how bad it was. I mean, this is, uh, you know, probably one of the key swing counties in a key swing state. And I think it's like a couple of guys, you know, sitting on sitting inside of an old Denny's, you know, just volunteering with no data and trying to figure out where they should go knock on doors. I mean, by all accounts, it's pathetic. And, and there's that, reading, that uh, story in Colorado about uh, one of their the offices in the swing state, the Trump office, was run by a, a, literally a 12-year-old kid was in charge yeah. of the field office in this important swing county in Colorado. Right. There's that. And I just read today that in Florida they said they're going to have a dozen uh, offices set up by now. They don't have one set up yet. Um, so I have to believe, and I know I've read that too at the margins, but as you said, you know, in a couple of these states, if, you know, I, I think of – Arizona and Georgia, most of all, where if she's, she gets within two, three points, maybe maybe having a great – and usually they say it only makes that kind of a difference when when you've got a great one versus a not-so-good one. Well, what about a great one versus an almost non-existent one? I mean, I'm just wondering. I'm not being Pollyannish here. I have no idea. Uh, but I, I am kind of wondering what that what that might be, you know? Yeah, and if you, if you look at the Electoral College and what's happened in the last few elections uh, – the Republicans really have to almost run the table in the swing states in order to win, in order to win the Electoral College. Um, the, uh, the Democrats, Clinton, can afford to lose Ohio. She can afford to lose North Carolina. She can give a bunch of those away, and if she still holds on to kind of the core states that President Obama won both times and that haven't gone, you know, states like Pennsylvania that haven't gone to Republican in a long time, if she, if she can sort of hold on to that core and just win Florida, maybe one, one or two others, that's, that's enough for her. But Trump really has to win almost all the swing states if he's going to win the Electoral College. That's a great point because I think a lot of people don't realize that and maybe you can think of one. Um, okay, I can think of one state, but although it's now a swing state again, which was Missouri, that was always a swing state that they kind of pulled in a reddish direction that went from being a swing state to being more of a red state. But that's the only one since Obama ran that I can think of like that. You, you've got North Carolina, which became a swing state. Virginia, that went not only over to being a swing state, to, but to almost to being a safe Democratic state. Colorado is another one. And now we're looking at potentially Arizona and Georgia, I mean, if, if she were to win by bigger margins, you're also talking bringing Missouri back, and you're even talking South Carolina. So that's a, what you're saying. I mean, Missouri is the only one, and, and there may be others I can think of that went in, a, in the direction, a red enough direction to stop being a swing state, at least in 12, um, from being a swing state. All the others have been trending in the Democratic direction. Yeah, and if you go far enough back, you can see some states in the South that used to vote for Democrats, places like Tennessee or, or Georgia, which Bill Clinton won, you know, that, that, that a long time ago were Democratic. But since the South kind of – since whites in the South went firmly behind the Republican Party, have now become firmly Republican. But in, but in places like, like Georgia, uh, the interesting thing is that the whites are not getting any more liberal, but there has been increases uh, in numbers of – and in Georgia, there has been increases in African Americans, and there's been big increases in Asian Americans and in Latinos, and those are heavily Democratic groups. And so as the demography of states like that change, um, and you mentioned South Carolina, which people could might think, well, how could South Carolina, so conservative a state, possibly go to the Democrats? And the reason is, it's not that, that all the white people aren't voting Republican, because they are. It's because there are a lot of African Americans in South Carolina, and now they're starting to become more Latinos, and that can make it competitive. Well, that is a bad thing for them. It's a good thing for sanity, though, I'd say. We are out of time. Hey, listen, Paul, thanks for coming and sharing your thoughts and uh, making us a little bit smarter today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks a lot, Cliff. All right. You have a great day, everyone. Thank you for listening. 
It's Cliff Schechter. I have enjoyed today. You can find me at Cliff Schechter on Twitter if you are so inclined. Otherwise, uh, I'll see you uh, next time I'm, uh, I'm around here. Take care.